0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for his church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. I think it's been a couple months now since we've been in Revelation because of Christmas and all, but uh, we're going to continue our study on the seven churches of Revelation, and we come to the city of Philadelphia this morning. It's situated on the map about 28 miles southeast of Sardis. As cities go, it was a pretty new city because it was founded in 140 B.C. by the king of Pergamos. His name was Attalus II, and he had a second name, as many did in those times, and his second name was Philadelphus, and so the city was named after him. The landscape surrounding the city was an advantageous for various reasons, advantageous for preaching the gospel. Uh, Sardis and Smyrna were both in the larger valley known as the Hermas River Valley. Uh, valley, but from that valley branched off a smaller valley toward the southeast. And in that valley, they built a road, which was the easiest way to climb this 2,500-foot climb upward to what's called the Central Plateau. Philadelphia was built atop an 800-foot hill rising up from the valley. And its placement, as I said, was advantageous because it was a junction city between several trade routes, including the Imperial mail route, which is why one of the letters went to this church, at least one of the reasons why. The founders of this city intended that it would be, if you will, a shining city on a hill and a center for spreading Greek culture and language, but also their Hellenistic pagan religion as well. And in the city's temple... They had, a, uh, they had practiced something that I think is important to note as we read further. Um, when someone in the area or in the city did something noteworthy or courageous, uh, they would inscribe their name on one of the temple pillars, and uh, there it would stay. One big setback for this city was that it was located uh, in a very seismically active area, and... Uh, the, um, I guess in 17 AD, there was a massive earthquake and uh, it really just pummeled Philadelphia and it also hit Sardis and several other cities in the region. And, you know, some of the other cities on the outside got, got more damage, but because Philadelphia was closer to uh, the center of the quake, They had to deal with ongoing aftershocks, actually, for years after that. Um, And so this traumatized the people, as you can imagine, because the structures they built back then had no means of enduring a large earthquake. And when their buildings fell, there were usually mass casualties involved. So if you can imagine the, the fear that would come along with being in a place that, has quakes often, and then, of course, losing loved ones, perhaps children, parents, whatever, and they were always on the alert for quakes that might happen. Uh, there was an archaeologist by the name of Sir William Ramsey, and here's what he wrote about uh, Philadelphia and their attitude, their psyche toward um, the earthquakes. Quote, many of the inhabitants remained outside the city living in huts, and booths over the veil. And those who were foolhardy enough, as the sober-minded thought, to remain in the city, practiced various devices to support and strengthen the walls and houses against the recurring shocks. The memory of this disaster lived long. People lived amid ever-threatening danger, in dread always of a new disaster. And the habit of going out into the open country had probably not disappeared when the seven letters were written. So we see that, and that's going to be important as we move on. Eventually, uh, Caesar Tiberius gave the city of Philadelphia financial help in order to rebuild the city as long as they erected a statue there in his name. But Philadelphia went above and beyond um, and possibly in an act of flattery the city actually changed their name, and they changed their name to Neo-Caesarea. Neo-Caesarea. So talk about flattery. They named it after the Caesar. Uh, For several years, it kept that name until eventually they changed the name again to uh, Flavia or Flavia. I'll let you go with your preference on that since you probably use that word often. So there were several name changes there, but over the years it was actually known as both uh, Flavia, 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 and Philadelphia. And Christ wrote to the church of Philadelphia, but historically we know very little about this actual church. We assume the church was started during Paul's fruitful uh, evangelism and missions uh, out of the church of Ephesus. We have historical record that some of the believers in Philadelphia were martyred along with Polycarp at Smyrna, and the church stood until the region was overrun by Muslims in the 14th century. So there are several things to note here as we consider this city and later read through the text of the letter. Remember the practice of inscribing names on the temple pillars. Remember the name change of the city. They changed it two or three different times. And remember that when the earthquakes came, they fled outside of the temple and outside of the city into the open country in fear. And these are all going to be important as we get further down in, in the text. Now, although the Apostle John is pinning this letter, and although the Spirit is saying these things to the churches, which is just another example of how the Godhead is in perfect unity at all times, By now, surely you have it established in your minds that the author of these letters to these seven churches is Jesus Christ himself. It's Jesus Christ himself. And these could be considered epistles, is what I like to say, but epistles written by Jesus to these churches. And it's remarkable that even in the modern-day church, if we wanted to get an idea of how we're doing in representing Christ as a local body of Christ— all we have to do is study these letters and ask some hard questions. For what reason did Jesus commend these churches, and for what reason were they rebuked by him? And then, of course, we compare our church to those things that he, he uh, you know, either rebuked or commended them for, and we see how we stack up. In the opening of pre, uh, the previous five letters, it's fascinating to see that when Jesus introduces—I'm sorry—introduces sorry, introduces himself, he connects himself with the vision that John had of him and the description of himself in chapter one, verses twelve through seventeen. And uh, it's pretty awesome if you go back and read that how he connects each letter. But the, in, this introduction of this letter is different. It doesn't recall the vision of him in chapter 1. This description recalls descriptions of attributes of God found in the Old Testament. Okay? So he's purposefully introducing himself in a different way. So in verse 7, he says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, This is what he who is holy who is true, who has the key of David. Okay. So he who is holy, he who is holy. And this is not some blasé sort of description, you know, where we're just like, yeah, holy, 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 blah, blah, blah. You know, and I think often we can get into that mode of not truly recognizing the holiness of God. Here's what you need to understand When the Bible calls him holy, holy, holy. When that's proclaimed. He is holy, infinitely holy. And then above that is another infinite amount of holiness. And above that is another infinite amount of holiness. Do you get what I'm saying? God is holy. This is something that we have to understand. And if you will, imagine for a moment before the birds of the sky or the fish of the sea, before the majestic rising of the mountains and the vast oceans ever came into being, before the sun and the moon and the stars had been set in their heavenly place, before all things were created, there was only God, infinite and perfect in every one of his attributes, alone, yet infinitely sufficient, eternally content having no need of anything. God didn't create us because he had a need for somebody to love. God loved God within the unity of the Godhead. He didn't need us. He created us for a purpose. Anyone outside of the perfection of the unity of the Father, the Word that we become flesh, and the Holy Spirit, I feel like I missed something there, so let me rewind. Please forgive me. He's infinitely sufficient, eternally content, having no need of anything outside or anyone outside of the perfection of the unity of the Father, the Word, which would become flesh, who we know is Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And in the vastness of however eternity past worked, however that works, and it's obviously unfathomable for you and I, Uh, before the foundations of the world were laid, our holy God purposed to create this physical world. And he did this for one reason alone, because it pleased the Godhead to show forth God's glory, revealing his own worth, his majesty, his righteousness, his justice, and his holiness. It's all about him. Truly, this is whom we're introducing here. The infinite, eternal word that stepped down from his heavenly throne and out of that exalted state of glory to become a tiny baby in a manger. And yet, he is holy. Christ is holy. Even as a man he had never been one iota less than a member of the unified Godhead of eternity past. Never lost one ounce of his power. Never re- relinquished one bit of his holiness or divinity at any time. And to say that and to preach that is heresy. To say that he laid aside his divinity. to la- He laid aside his deity. That's not what scripture says. He's always been God. He's always been the fullness of God. He just merely veiled his glory in a human body. God's always been described as the holy one in Scripture. And when Christ set foot on the, this earth, he was no exception to that. And Scripture attests to this very fact. In Luke 125, if you're taking notes, write down Luke 125. Luke 125. The angel Gabriel announced the coming birth of Christ, and he called him this, the holy child. No one else gets that designation except God. In John 6, 69, John six sixty nine, Peter affirms that he and the disciples, quote, have believed and have come to know that you are the holy one of God. You are the Holy One of God. In Mark one twenty four, Mark one twenty four, a fascinating passage of Scripture, a terrified demon addresses Christ and says, quote, what do we have to do with you, Jesus the Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Even the demons knew who he was, and they proclaimed it. Similarly, the demoniac raging among the tombstones said, Have you come to destroy us before the time? They knew that Christ had an appointed time in which he would destroy them. And they thought, Hey, whoa, hold up a second. You're early. Have you come already to destroy us before the time? And the demons recognized him as God, as they said, knowing both his power and and his holiness and they addressed him as such they trembled before Christ in acts 3:14 acts chapter 3 and verse 14 Peter's preaching a sermon to the unbelieving Jews who had rejected Christ and he says quote you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Now just think about that for a moment. The holy, the only holy and righteous one. And they ask for a murderer to be released and Christ to be crucified. In this letter, when Christ defines himself as holy, it's a direct connect, connection and pronouncement that I am God. God. He is holy, and His church is instructed to be holy as well. Now, obviously, we'll never attain His level of holiness, but we're still instructed to live in such a way that reflects His holiness. As the moon reflects the light of the sun, we reflect God's holiness in our lives. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.15, 1 Peter 115, he says this, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all of your conduct. In all of your conduct. Man, why mess around? Why play games? Why fiddle around and walk close to the edge of sin? Stay away from that stuff. Get yourself as close to God as you possibly can. Pour yourselves out before him. Give him everything. Make him the Lord of your life and stay away from the stuff that will destroy you. He'll transform you. The other stuff will destroy you. And we all know what our own issues are in the areas of sin. At least we should by now. We find in this letter that the church of Philadelphia must have been doing something pretty well in their reflection of Christ's holiness because he has no rebuke for them in this entire letter none whatsoever. Following his description of holiness, Jesus refers to himself as the one who is true. The one who is true. He said himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other truth. He's it. I know that sounds awfully exclusive and to the modern world really mean, but the truth is, folks, if you love people, you will tell them Jesus is the only way The truth and the life. Since the very first sin, when the light bearer, or as most know him, Lucifer, fell and became the father of lies, lies, half-truths, and all-out perversion have spread and permeated this world like a cancer. However, in the midst of all of that, there is still only one who is immaculately true, And that is Jesus Christ, only one, Jesus Christ. the third way he introduces himself is the one who has the key of David. Now, in Revelation, if you were to do a survey of the book of Revelation and its context, David, King David, represents the office of the Messiah as promised in the Davidic covenant, specifically his kingship. And a key in various scriptures represents authority. Because as we all know, if there's only one key, whoever's holding the key has all the power, right? That's a pretty simple concept. Jesus as the only one who holds the key of David. He alone has the authority to sovereignly decide who walks through the door into his messianic kingdom and who does not. It's up to him, completely up to him. In fact, Revelation one eighteen, Revelation one eighteen, he says, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He arrested death. He took control of the keys of death or of Hades, and he's in full control. Death no longer has any sin, no longer has any, any authority. However, in contrast to those keys, this passage describes Jesus as having the keys to salvation and blessing. He holds all of the keys which makes him supreme and sovereign over all. So he's got the keys of death and Hades, and he's got the keys of salvation and blessing. Now, to conclude this unique description of who he himself says he is, he is the one who opens and no one will shut. And who shuts and no one opens. The thing about holding all of the keys, as I said, is that when you lock a door, it stays locked. And when you unlock it and open it, it's open until you decide to lock it again. Only here we have to recognize that it speaks of God's omnipotent power. Nobody's going to be jimmying the lock of of the pearly gates, okay? It's not going to happen. This is God's omnipotent power. He's communicating. No one is like me. No one is like me. No one is my equal. I am the holy God who shuts and no one opens and who opens and no one shuts and there's no way to reverse it. He acts according to his pleasure, according to his sovereign will alone And again, there's no creature in heaven or in earth with even one iota, the level of power that could challenge his. You need to think of God the right way. We must. If you think he's just like us, we get into terrible error. If you think he's he's the enemy of Satan, you're in terrible error. Satan's a created being, a fallen created being. He's not God's Foe, God could say the word and Satan would go poof and cease to exist. But here the blessings of eternal the eternal kingdom are open and shut according to his desire. And he makes clear in this introduction: I am the Holy One, true, sovereign, and omnipotent God, and now I write this letter to you, Philadelphia. Unlike four of the previous church letters, Christ is commending. The church of Philadelphia. And as I said before, this is all commendation and no correction and no warning. So let's read from the beginning again. Now that we understand that introduction, let's start there again. This is what he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens says, I know your deeds. Behold, I've given before you an open door, which no one can shut. Because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now let's break this down together. He knows their deeds and yet he has nothing negative to say. So their, their deeds have all been approved by God. He has sovereignly put before them an open door that no one can shut. And because of their faithfulness, they will enjoy his eternal reward. An open door in Scripture has to be harmonized with this passage as well. and other passages throughout God's Word, an open door referred to opportunities to share the gospel. If there's an open door, that means we can go out, the road is clear, and we can go share the gospel unhindered. In the first letter to Corinth in chapter 16, uh, that's 1 Corinthians 16, Paul told them, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective service has been opened unto me and there are many adversaries it's interesting that he says there are many adversaries but when god opens a door the adversaries can't shut it god's gonna get his way he uses the same phrase open door in the same context if you're taking notes in second corinthians chapter 2 second corinthians chapter 2 and in colossians 4 as well, Colossians 4. So you can write that down and maybe a little homework for you. Go back and read that. But this open door is the first reward that Christ promises this fruitful and faithful church. He says, quote, because you have little power, which in no way is a slight against them. He's not saying you guys are weaklings. That's not what he's saying. He's acknowledging their faithfulness and perseverance in spite of of the little power that they have, the little influence that they have. They were a small church, small in numbers, but not small in deeds. Therefore, they had made a large impact on their city for the sake of the gospel. And it was likely that the folks in this church were poor. They likely came from the other side of the tracks, and that, in those times that would be camel tracks, And even still, they were faithful to the truth, and it showed. The next thing he says is, quote, You have kept my word. You have kept my word. It never ceases to amaze me that in this day and time, the church itself lacks discernment more than anything else. If some man's got a suit and tie on, and he's proclaiming something about, God or the Bible, people just swallow it hook, line, and sinker. There's no discernment. And they say the wildest, craziest, most blasphemous things that you can ever imagine. But here he says to this church, they didn't do that. They kept his word. Church, we are to keep his word. We are to guard his work. We are to be as the Bereans were. When they even tested Paul, They looked into Scripture, studied the Scriptures to make sure the Apostle Paul was telling them the truth according to the Scriptures. That's who we're supposed to be, that vigilant. What a commendation it was to this church. What an accomplishment. They've stayed true to his word, unlike so many of the other churches in the region. Then he he added to that, you have not denied my name. And I'm sure we can all figure out what this means. This little church would not deny Christ under the pressure of often immense persecution. They counted the cost of being a follower of Christ, and they were paying that heavy price. As we learned earlier, some of them martyred uh, with Polycarp in Smyrna, or I'm sorry, in, in Sardis. You know, we don't face any kind of pressure the way the church in in the past has. And we sometimes think that things are so terrible, but we still have a great deal of freedom to share the gospel and to live our lives in a way that proclaims the gospel, even in the way we act and the things that we say. We don't have to face this kind of persecution yet. So take advantage of it. And then what happens when persecution comes? The church is purified. The Lord purifies His church in times of persecution. Let's look at verse 9 again. Or, for, yeah. Behold, I'm giving up those of the synagogue of Satan, those who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Now, just to picture this, this is like a rival or, or, or someone who's just been terrible to you. And the Lord is saying, I'm going to prove to that person that I love you. They're in the wrong. And before this is all over, they are going to come to you and grovel at your feet. That's essentially what he's saying here. There was a constant persecution and hostility from unbelieving Jews. So because the Jews in the synagogue there in Philadelphia had rejected Christ... They were not of the synagogue of God in God's eyes. Rather, he describes them as the synagogue of Satan. And coming from Jesus, I would not want our local church to be called a synagogue of Satan. That means you've kind of messed some things up along the way. And their claims of being Jews was in his eyes a lie. And though they were Jews by blood, and although they have likely been circumcised according to the law... In Romans 2, Romans chapter 2, Paul describes true Jews as being circumcised in their heart, born again by the Spirit. And here Jesus writes this wonderful second promise to the faithful church. Quote, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and make them know that I have loved you. If you ever find... One person, as I said, bowing at the feet of another person, especially in an adversarial sense, what you're seeing is complete submission and defeat. As a matter of fact, in the many times in history, when one army would conquer the other, they would grab the leader of that opposing army, they would march him down the street, and they would lay him down on the ground in front of all the people, and they would place their foot on top of him sometimes on his throat to show that they had ultimately conquered that other army. And Christ does this to prove his love for them. We have no historical record of this actually happening there in Philadelphia with the Jews and those Christians there at that little church. But we know... Uh, because this is a prophetic book that this will certainly take place in the future this perpetual wicked generation of unbelieving jews that had rejected the messiah would one day have a chance at redemption when through the fires of tribulation in romans 11:26 paul says this all israel will be saved all israel will be saved and it doesn't mean that every Jew of Abraham's bloodline will be saved. It means God has a chosen remnant that will be called out from among them when it's all over. And in Zechariah 12 10, Zechariah 12 10, since Zechariah is a long word to write I'm going to say it again, Zechariah 12 verse 10, we have this incredible prophecy regarding those future repentant believing Jews. Here's what it says. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. That's not in a negative sense. Those are tears of sorrow and tears of joy as well. Speaking of tribulation, verse 10 says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. The first thing to note, this says, this hour of testing, he writes in this passage, in its context, is very clearly in the future. It's future tense. Second, It's for a specified period of time okay it's not going to go on forever he says it's a hour of testing okay third to fail the test is to be exposed for unbelief and everyone will see them for what they really are and fourth we see this test is a global test and reserved for everyone who dwells on the earth and that phrase those who dwell on the earth is very consistent in the book of Revelation, always describing unbelievers, those who have rejected Christ. He then goes on to say in verse 11, I am coming quickly. And this speaks of the imminence of his coming, which encourages all to live with expectancy. He wants you to live with expectancy. He wants you to believe that it might be today, that when we pop up out of bed today, that any moment he could crack open the sky and gather his church to be home with him. Hold fast to what you have, he says. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The crown here is is described in other passages as the crown of life. And of course, this is a symbol of eternal life. Hold fast to what you have so that no one can steal your crown. These Philadelphian believers had proven themselves thus far to be loyal to Christ in the face of great adversity and persecution. And perseverance proves the genuineness of salvation. I want to say that again. Perseverance, staying on the path of righteousness, proves that genuineness in the heart, a true, genuine salvation. Colossians 12, 22 through 23. Colossians 12, 22 through 23 says, But now He reconciled you in the body of His flesh through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Listen. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, And of which I, Paul, was made a minister. This is in no way stating that these Philadelphian believers could lose their salvation. That's something you need to get settled. But you need to settle it according to Scripture. Alright? Rather than stating if they remain in the faith, it proves that they were true, genuine believers to begin with. Now... Can you lose your salvation? Very clearly in Scripture, it teaches us that if you leave, that you were never saved in the first place. My dad used to say, the faith that fizzles before the finish had a flaw from the first. That's what he would say. It's a good way to remember it. In 1 John 2, 19, 1 John 2, 19, this very same author that wrote the book of Revelation writes of this very same topic. And here's what he says. 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they were of us, they would not, or they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be manifested that they all are not of us. Does that make crystal clear to everyone? I believe so. 1 Peter 1, 5 through 11. If you read that, 1 Peter 1, 5 through 11, read that uh, passage. Peter describes this spirit-driven perseverance and the eternal outcome. Here's what he says, quote, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. You've got a part in this. You have to submit, but ultimately it's the work of the Spirit in your life. Be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. For in doing these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Once you're saved and it's a genuine salvation, that's an act of God. That is an act of God. And we often quote John 3.16 about having everlasting life. Well, Everlasting life can't end, or it's not everlasting. Pretty simple, right? So can you lose everlasting life? No, you can't lose everlasting life. It's just impossible. If you, if you walked with the Lord for 10 years, and then you abandon the faith, and you go off and do your own thing, you did not have everlasting life. You had 10-year life. That's how that works. So, you know, we need to take into account what Scripture actually says about this Topic. So when Christ writes, hold fast to what you have, hold fast to what you have, it's virtually the same thing Peter describes when he says, be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. Keep walking in faith. Keep submitting yourself daily to him and the washing of his word. Keep on keeping on. And in the power of the Spirit, that's what happens. You persevere. And that's an act of God as well, as Scripture also tells us. And that's our responsibility to perpetually submit ourselves to the sanctifying work of the Spirit through the washing of the Word. And if we continue in that, we, quote, hold fast to what we have. Verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and he will never go out from it anymore. So here we get some of the references that I asked you to note as we began, referencing the pillars in their local temple that they knew very well. The picture of these pillars, first of all, represents soundness, immovability, stability, permanence. And if you visit many of these ancient ruins today, I don't know if you guys have ever Uh, visited ancient ruins or not, but almost always some of the remaining things there are these huge pillars. Some have been knocked over and they've put them back up again, but they're still there because you can't throw a pillar on a cart with a donkey and cart it away. They're going to stay there, okay? Remember in their culture, the names were inscribed upon the pillars as a way to honor them over the ages to come. As long as that pillar remains, that person would be honored. Even if the pillar fell over, there's still name, their names inscribed on that pillar. So for Christ to tell these people in the church of Philadelphia that he will, quote, make them a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, you can imagine that is a magnificent place of honor in that eternal reality. The second thing he recalls is the effect that the quakes had on the psyche of the Philadelphian people. They never knew when they'd have to grab their things and flee the city because of one of those earthquakes. But he says they will never go out from it anymore. This is going to be, it's a promise, this eternal security and the safety of an eternal home with Christ and in the presence of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And listen, never again to be breached By sin and death and sorrow and crying and pain. That is what lies ahead for each and every true believer in Christ. We talked of the name changes earlier as well. And Christ has scheduled some name changes of his own here in this passage. He says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from heaven from my God and my new name. So you will be an eternal pillar in the presence of God, and he will inscribe his name on you. And when we own something, we want everybody to know it. That's ours, right? And so often what we'll do is we'll take out a Sharpie or whatever and we'll write our name on it so everybody knows that that's ours. And I I thought of, when I was studying, I thought of the movie Toy Story How Woody had uh, Andy's name written on the bottom of his boot. He knew who who he belonged to. How incredible that God will inscribe his name upon us. We are our beloveds and he is ours. We are his possession. He doesn't stop with his name though. He'll write the name of his God. Then he'll write the new Jerusalem. What is this? He's writing his name and address. This is who I belong to, and this is where I belong, eternally. And then he says Jesus will write his new name upon us as well. Incredible. What an incredible promise. We will know to whom we belong and where we belong forever and ever. Christ Jesus closes the letter with a customary sign-off in each of the seven letters. He who has an ear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, if you sit here and you ignore what God is saying, if you sit here humdrum and none of the word of God even pricks your heart or in any way, you need to pray that God would open your ears. Pray that God would open your eyes. These issues are eternal issues. Don't sit there and ignore the preaching of the gospel and the truth of God's word. And not be concerned if you're not moved by it. Amen? He's telling them to pay close attention to the content of this letter. And I believe each of us here today are to do the same as well. Pay close attention to the content of each and every one of these letters that Christ himself wrote to his church. This letter, as do all seven letters, reveal the content of Christ's nature. He is holy. He is true. He is sovereign. He is omnipotent. He pours out eternal blessings to churches and believers who are faithful. So will you be faithful in this crazy day and time when people don't know What bathrooms to go in and supposed men are having babies and women are being sperm donors and all the stuff that the world tells us and cramming lies down our throat. Will you have the courage to be faithful to the one holy God? Amen. Thank you. Amen. It's my hope that this local church would follow in the footsteps of that faithful church in Philadelphia. And that against all the odds in a world that is rapidly changing around us, we will have the courage to stand and do what He's called us to do no matter the cost. No matter the cost. Amen? Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome.